Today's scripture is from Luke's Gospel, one of the four accounts of the Jesus' life in the New Testament. We're going to be reading from Luke chapter 7. Again, all four Gospels, when Jesus shows up, there's, uh, well, dramatic things happen. Few, however, are quite as dramatic as this scene when Luke tells us about the miracle. That this, In this episode, it's, it's not just about, it's just a healing. It isn't just a metaphor for a new life. It's, well, it's, it's quite literal in this young man's encounter with Jesus. And it literally means life instead of death. So, let's listen to what God might be telling us in this story of a mother and a son in the village called Nan. You can follow along. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nan. He and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, there was a dead person being carried out. Ah, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his, his heart went out and said, Don't cry. Then he went up and, and he touched the bear and the, that they were carrying him on. And the bear stood still and he said, Young man, I say to you, get up! And the dead man stood up. <laughs> and he started talking. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Oh, they were all filled and they praised God And they said, he is a great prophet, and he has appeared among us. And then they said, God has come to help his people. This is the news about, this news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Praise be to God. Thank you, Sky. I love the drama with which you do that. Thank you so much. So... Sometimes, you have to take a step beyond what's familiar to see a real miracle. And as far as we know, this tiny Galilean village of Nain, which is actually only about 10 miles from Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, was not a familiar place for Jesus or for any of his disciples. In fact, this one verse... Luke 7.11 is the only place in the whole Bible where this town's name even shows up, which means that none of Jesus' other miracles or the other stories about Jesus apparently took place in Nain. It is not the hometown for any of the disciples. What's more, if you look at a map of the Roman road system in first century Galilee, you'll notice that there aren't any roads that pass through Nain on their way anywhere else. Which pretty much means that you don't end up in Nain by accident. Nobody ends up in Nain without first intentionally deciding to go to Nain. But you get the sense in this first verse, verse 11, the first verse of this passage that Sky read for us, you get the sense that Jesus shows up in Nain, dragging along with him his disciples and this large crowd of other followers on purpose. Jesus knows why he's there. He knows what he's doing. I don't even think it is an accident 
that just as he and the disciples are approaching the gate of Nain, they come upon this funeral procession that's leaving the town. I think Jesus is propelled to Nain by deep compassion for this widow and her son in order to exchange their deep and their profound grief with an an astonishing and a joy-filled miracle. It is a miracle that I am calling, if you'll forgive the pun, the Nain event. Because this is not just any miracle, is it? This is a literal resurrection. I mean, think about it. This is a literal resurrection. At the uh, beginning of this passage, this young man is, well, dead. And by the end of the passage, he has sat up and he is chatting with everyone around him. Jesus has raised him from the dead. And if that's the case, I think we should probably pay attention to this particular miracle and what it is that Jesus might be trying to tell us through it. And so this morning, in order to do that, I'm going to focus in on this young man himself, on this young man who is at the center of this whole story. And as sometimes happens, there is a lot that Luke, the narrator, does not tell us about this man, such as what's happened? How is it that this young man has died so many years before his time? Well, we are not told. All that Luke tells us is that he is this woman's only son, that he is dead, and that he is being carried, presumably by the men of the village of Nain, on a funeral pallet. The NIV uses the word a beer, it's basically a stretcher, being carried out from the town and into this scene with Jesus. So, who is he? Well, other than introducing him simply as his mother's only son, Luke gives us just one more clue. And it is the word that Jesus uses to address him when we get to verse 14. And most translations, including the NIV that I'm using this morning, translate it as young man. Well, this is actually a version of the Greek word neo. And many of you can probably guess what neo means. It's in the word neonatal. It's in the word neoconservative. Of course, it's the Greek word for new. But in this usage, there's kind of this diminutive ending put on the end of it, kind of this cute ending. So it really means more like in English our word newbie or maybe our word youngster. All this to say that while Luke does not tell us the specific age of this young man, it would seem a little odd to me to use this word youngster to address a male of, say, 25 or 30, and especially in that culture, which seems to suggest that here in Luke's seventh chapter is yet again another passage about a teenager. 
Okay, if you were here two weeks ago, we considered the teenage Samuel who one night in the temple found himself addressed personally by God. Last week, Kurt focused our attention on Jesus the middle schooler, also in the temple talking theology with the grown-ups while his parents hunted for him frantically high and low. And now here in Luke 7, what do you know, another teenager? Which causes me to ask, could it be that by using this particular idiom for this young man, by calling our attention to this boy's age, could it be that Luke wants to tell us something not just about Jesus' power to bring life in the midst of death, but to do so specifically in the life of a teenager? I think so. And so... I want to make just a few observations about this episode, a few things that I think Jesus wants us to notice as Jesus calls us as a congregation into the lives of teenagers in this community in some new way that we are even now discovering. First, do you notice that Jesus, whose love is always tender, and compassionate is especially so in this scene. Jesus' heart, Luke tells us, went out to this mother and her son. Even more than in other scenes, Jesus is emotionally engaged here. He's emotionally engaged with what has befallen this boy, what has befallen this family, and so he stops And he takes the time to look at this mom. He notices her tears and he says, don't cry. He says that tenderly to this mom. This is compassion that begins with acknowledging deep sadness. Sadness at what should not be. That at a stage of life that should be characterized by youth and by promise and by hope, There is here instead bleakness and hopelessness and even death. But isn't that so often the great and tragic paradox for young people? The teenage years are a time that in so many cases are full of hope and promise and vigor and On the one hand, teens regularly inspire me. They regularly challenge me. They regularly fill me with hope. Friday, late afternoon, 5.15, I was in the back parking lot in the prayer circle because we were sending 17 of our teens and their adult leaders on their fall retreat at Warm Beach, where they are even now. And I marveled at every teenager there, just at what impressive people they are. Maybe on a more international scale, um, this week's global climate strike, you may know, was inspired by a 16-year-old Swedish young woman named Greta Thunberg. That's another great example of of a teenager. Wow, maybe there is hope for our planet. And yet, and yet, even in spite or even at the same time of so much hope and so much promise and so much vigor, 
There are so many teens that at this season of life don't, in fact, feel that joy, but instead feel something more akin to death. Now, most of the time, this feeling of death is metaphorical, but it's no less real. Research consistently shows that the teen years, even amidst all of that vigor, can also be a time of deep depression and alienation and loneliness and even despair. In the Snohomish County Health District's annual youth survey for 2018, 44% of local high school seniors reported feeling, quote, seriously depressed at some point in the previous year. 31% reported that, quote, they have no adult to turn to when feeling sad or hopeless. Tuesday evening, Tuesday afternoon, after kind of mulling all of this all day, I was listening to NPR, NPR, All Things Considered, and they had this interview with an 18-year-old girl from Oakland. Her real name is Maya, but... Apparently, and I knew nothing about this, apparently the teenage world on YouTube knows this young woman by the moniker MXM Tune. That's one word, MXM Tune. And as she told her story, this young woman, starting about age 15, each night would say goodnight to her folks, she would go to her bedroom, she would dutifully do two hours of homework, and then, unbeknownst to her family, she would turn on her camera and she would record videos of songs that she had written, accompanied by just a ukulele, and then she'd post them on the internet. And these songs, and they had a few of them in this piece, she describes them as rhyming diary entries. They are achingly honest expressions of teenage loneliness and depression and alienation, and they're sung in this haunting voice with these simple plaintive melodies. And MXM Tune's ability to put the interior life of a teenager into these heart-rending songs apparently has found many kindred spirits online, because in the interview, She tells the story of this moment in 2017 when she had to come clean to her astonished parents that she was, in fact, an international viral internet sensation and that record labels were beginning to contact her with great interest. I was so taken by the authenticity and the ache in her voice that I got on YouTube to hear more. And I discovered in the first song that came up as I turned on YouTube and put in her name, I found this song with this title, this title that much better than I could makes clear this connection that I'm trying to make, this connection between the pain that is so often present in the inner life of a teenager and that young man on the funeral pallet just outside of the village of Nain. In fact, it is a song titled, Feelings are fatal. And I wanted to play just a short clip of it for you right now. How many times must I keep it inside? I need to let go and I swear that I've tried But opening up means trust in others And that's just too much I don't want to bother So I'll keep it inside and bury it deep I know it's not healthy But you won't hear a peep Though I'm always sad and I'm always lonely 
I can never tell you that I'm breaking slowly Closed doors, locked in, no keys Keeping my feelings hidden, there is no ease I need it to stop, and I want to be able to open up But my feelings are fatal Whoa, My feelings are fatal Not simply metaphorical for a teenager. Those, that same Snohomish Health District statistics report tells us that one in four local high school seniors have, quote, seriously considered attempting suicide in the last year. One in four. And that one in five have gone so far as to make an actual plan to carry it out. So, when Luke tells us that Jesus' heart went out to this mother and to her son in Nain, I know that his heart also goes out to all of the teenagers and all of their families in this community whose inner world, even at this moment in 2019, is not a place of life, but of death and despair. Don't cry, he says. Just as Jesus' heart goes out to this teen outside of Nain, longing to restore to him the life that his own father intended for this young man, Jesus still seeks out teenagers, wherever they are. He goes to them. He steps into their worlds, into their towns, into their schools, into their lonely bedrooms, and still calls them from death to life. But you notice something else about how this resurrection takes place that day in Nain. Jesus is there, of course, but he's not alone. In fact, Luke goes to somewhat ridiculous lengths to fill this scene with people. Many other episodes in the Gospels feature a crowd. A few even feature a large crowd. Well, Luke tells us that there outside the city of Nain that day, there wasn't just one large crowd, there were two. One large crowd comes into town with Jesus and the disciples in verse 11. The other comes out from the gates of town with this funeral procession in verse 12. What I take from this is that this teenager was not just this mom's concern, it wasn't even just Jesus' concern. This teenager was everyone's concern. The disciples and the rest of Jesus' followers show up in Nain, and they stand in solidarity with the people of that village, who in turn stand in solidarity with this teen and his grieving mom. It's as if Luke is telling us that if a teenager is going to experience Jesus' resurrection, Jesus will be a part of it, yes, but so will a whole lot of other people. In fact, it's going to likely take a large crowd of Jesus' followers, followers who show up even though they aren't even from Nain, including these men carrying the boy's funeral beer. 
I love that image. Luke tells us that when they got near to Jesus, they stopped. They stood still. They, they bring, Jesus, they bring the, the young man into Jesus' proximity, and they wait to see what Jesus will do. I love this image because I happen to have a powerful teenage moment of my own that I will forever connect to these stretcher carriers in Luke's gospel. Or to put it another way, at a key moment in my own teenage years, I had stretcher carriers of my own. There were four high school friends of my older sister, Linda. They were friends that she knew in a particular club of an organization called Young Life. You might be familiar with it. It's a non-denominational parachurch Christian outreach ministry that intentionally goes into the lives of teens, meets them on their turf. In fact, next week at 9 a.m., we're going to have the Everett Area Director, Brittany Frankie, who's going to be doing our 9 a.m. class for us next week. But okay, back to my stretcher bearers. Some of you may know that when I was 13 years old, when I was in seventh grade, over Christmas break, I had a serious snowmobiling accident on my uncle's property up in the mountains outside of Denver. I shattered my right femur. I had a serious compound tib-fib fracture on my left side, and I also broke my knee. I got a helicopter ride to Denver, which was kind of cool, but then I got three months of traction, which wasn't so cool. So you can see me here in traction in the hospital. In March, three months later, they finally sent me home, except they sent me home in a rigid body cast. This is what they did at the time. This went up to my chest, immobilizing my legs, which meant I was flat on my back for the next four months. So in this next slide... What you are looking at is the only surviving photographic evidence of an event that took place during those body cast months. It's an event that, as I look back on it, still kind of blows my mind that it even happened. These four high school guys from Young Life showed up at my house one night with a stretcher. And they put me on the stretcher, and then they put me in the back of a station wagon, and they took me to the junior high school's gym. And they carried me into the last meeting of the year of wildlife. Now, wildlife is Young Life's middle school ministry, or junior high at the time. And there, I lay on the floor, on the stretcher, immobilized on my back, in the middle of all the other kids who were sitting in the club, and I was sitting there, you know, clapping my hands to the crazy Young Life songs. Oddly, I don't recall feeling all that self-conscious being on a stretcher on the floor in the midst of them. I mean, I was 13, I was kind of clueless, but I, I was just profoundly glad to be included. I was grateful for those stretcher bearers. And surely, it was that experience of being cared for, of being noticed, that led me a year later to trust this group and to sign up to go on Wildlife's annual winter retreat. And it was there during a powerful moment of invitation between all the silly games and all the silly songs. It was there that maybe for the first time in my life, I heard Jesus speaking directly to me, and I decided to give my life to him and to follow him. And I don't think it's too melodramatic to say that what Jesus was saying to me at that wildlife retreat in the Colorado Rockies is really the same thing that he said to that teenager 
on that stretcher that day in Nain. Words that in both cases called a teenager from death to life. Young man, I say to you, get up. And I love this painting, this rendition of that moment. I found it online. It's by Jamaican-American artist Kareen Cullimore-Peters. Sometimes you have to take a step beyond what's familiar to see a real miracle. I think that is the invitation that Jesus is giving this congregation for this season. It's an invitation, and I've said this many times, I'm convinced includes not just a few of us, but every one of us in some way. It's the invitation that the elders on session are describing as being on mission in the lives of local teenagers. And it's in some way that God is still showing us. It is an invitation to take a step beyond the familiarity of these four walls and to look for the village of Nain in our own community, in the schools and in the neighborhoods that have been here all along but that which we tend not to notice. It is an invitation that I find thoroughly exciting. I cannot wait to see how Jesus is going to make this come to reality and into life. I'm excited because I'm convinced Jesus is still doing what he did that day in Nain. He is still calling young men and women from death to new life. And the closing verses of this passage echo with the sheer joy that results from that kind of resurrection. It's joy that reverberates and ripples through the entire community, through generations. As I think about this story, first, I, I can't imagine the shock and joy that the teen himself experienced. What was that like? That was kind of mind-blowing. Nor the joy of this mom who has her son restored to her. But the ripples of resurrection joy, they keep going and they flow through the whole community. They fill them with awe, causing them to praise God, certain that God has come, they say, that God has shown up to help his people. My hunch is that you already know this. You already know firsthand the way that when Jesus speaks directly to a young person and calls that young person from death to life, the ripples of new life spread through generations. They spread through families. They spread through an entire congregation. There is bountiful evidence of this all around us all of the time. For instance, in the life and the family of our own Sharon Marshall who has agreed to let me ask her a few questions this morning. Sharon, will you come up here? Thank you so much for letting me ask you some questions. Sure. All right, so, I don't know, six years ago, when I was getting to know you and Howard, as you were sharing your faith story in your life, I discovered that we share something in common, and it is that Jesus' way of calling us into faith had to do with this organization called Young Life that I was talking about a minute ago. So I am curious, how was it that you ended up at a Young Life meeting in what was probably the earliest years of that organization's existence? Well, we have to go in a time machine back to 1953. I wasn't going to say what the year was, so... <laughs> Is a long time ago, but I was a sophomore at Queen Anne High School, 
And like any typical teenager, I started making lots of girlfriends and friends in my class. And I noticed that people started saying, hey, why don't you come to a Young Life meeting on Monday night? I didn't know what Young Life was, but the invitation, when it was given to me, made me feel special and that somebody wanted me to be there, which gave me a sense of confidence, so I thought, why not? So I went to the Monday meetings, and as you said, we sang a lot of crazy songs and played games, and then our Young Life leader would offer a Bible story, preach the Word of God really faithfully, never deviated from the Bible story, and then it was all over. So that's how it all got started. Okay, so set the context a little bit. What, what was sort of the faith story of your family? No faith story. Zero. I never heard the Bible read in my home. I was never taken to church. Hmm. I was never told there was a God. It was a big, fat zero. So you said a little bit about what was going on at this meeting. What like took place in the ensuing weeks and months? So I kept attending Young Life meetings from September through December, just with all my friends, having a great time, loving being there because you love to be with your friends when you're a teenager. And then along about January or February, they said, we're going to have a camp at Camp Waskowitz. It's going to be so fun. Sharon, come on and come. So I said, okay. So I went. And I had that experience that you just talked about. Amazing that after all the fun and games, we had a serious moment. And the Young Life people are so focused on reaching the teenager who has no Christian background, and they're so focused on giving the message straight from the Word of God that I remember my Young Life leader standing up there. His name was Mitch. And he pre presented the story of salvation about, you know, there's this bridge between mm -hmm. you and God, and there's this gap, and you can't get across it and go to heaven, and you can't be a Christian without receiving Christ as your Savior. And I thought... Wow, I had never heard anything like this. I mean, it was so amazing. It just, God just came down from heaven and said, you're the girl. I want you to be my daughter. And, wow. and I gave my heart to the Lord, and I, I didn't even know I was in need of anything. I came with a big fat zero Wow. And not knowing I was dead in my trespasses and sin. So Young Life exists because some people observe that the church, which did a whole lot of good for the teenagers that grew up in the life of the church, was just not reaching a whole population. And so the whole point was to go on to Young Life, uh, to, to go on to young people's world and into their context, into their turf is the word that they always use, and be there. And it was adults Right. who would do this, and also other student leaders. But what do you remember about some of the adults who were part of this club? 
I just remember their incredible love. Uh, my young life leader was Ad Sewell, and he was all over the whole Seattle area speaking at different young life clubs every Monday night. And we met in someone's home on Queen Anne Hill where I lived, and he was always there. He was a constant. He was always preaching the word of God. He was always talking about God's love and how you could get it. It was something I really needed in my life. They were intentional about making sure you heard the gospel story. They made it real. Oh, they made it real by their life. And even this young life leader that I just mentioned invited Howard and I to he and his wife's home for dinner one night. And, you know, that just blew my mind because Howard and I were going steady at the time. We were sophomores in high school, thought we were so in love, and I think that this young life leader even had the intuition and God gave him the message that you need to have these young people into your home and spend an evening with them because they're dating and and they need some probably need some intervention in their life. <laughs> so when you've told me this story, you're looking back on it over many, many decades. And you can see God's blessings because of this moment as oh they've my. unfolded. So say just a word about that to finish up here. Well, I I had a campaign leader, and I'll tell you what campaigners was. It's just a name that they gave to what Young Life does that's so important. They follow up with their new converts. They don't leave you dangling out there all by yourself wondering, what do I do now with this new Christian faith? Every Saturday morning at 11 o'clock, I met with Anne and other girls in my group, and we studied the Bible, and we went through the book of Mark. Hmm. And that woman built into my life, became a mentor for me, something I never had in my family, but suddenly I now had a new family, a Christian family, and they were feeding into me God's word, and it totally changed my life. I mean, it's gone on now. I see that salvation story living out in my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren. It just keeps going down from generation to generation, and I'm so thankful for that. Sharon, thank you so much for sharing this moment with us. I really appreciate it.